This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Holy moly. Whew, I gotta calm down. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, the sound we're hearing is a reminder that we live in the midst of unimaginably vast forces. Most of the time we're totally unaware of them, but occasionally <laughs> they do let us know who's in charge. This is the roaring voice of tide in a place where huge masses of water flow through a narrow passageway. What's happening around us right now is caused because the surface of the oceans that cover two-thirds of the Earth are never still for a moment. They constantly rise up, sink down, and rise again. And that's caused by an incredibly complex interplay between the moon, the sun, the earth, and the oceans. I am standing on top of a rock called Wayanda Ledge, where I have always dreamed of standing. This is a mass of tidal rock in the middle of Sergius Narrows. And Sergius Narrows is a place that's widely known for the power of its tidal currents. Right smack in front of me, is a roaring maelstrom of water that's pouring over the submerged ledge that's part of this rock that I've got myself on top of. And as I look across, I can see the actual downslope of this water. I've been riding around in here in my skiff through whirlpools and places where the water just mounds up like there's a hill in the water. And as I look across, I can see a red steel buoy gleaming in the morning sun, and it's pulled most of the way underwater by the force of this tide. And this is a place where wildness has gone on steroids. It's a gorgeous spot, and it's a spot where it's a little bit crazy to ever find yourself. I, incidentally, I've got my exposure suit on here as a hedge against anything disastrous happening moving around on the rocks here a little so I can get a better view because on the other side of this rock I'm on is another channel and there you can really see the water pouring down the hill and thrashing white water and big whirlpool just now probably about 10 feet across four feet deep everything absolutely crazed and wild and full of power and utterly glorious well it happens to be a beautiful morning in October Sun is coming out, shreds of cloud moving by, and a bit chilly, maybe in the 40s. Lots of gulls drifting around, and a sea lion that I've been watching down below the rock here has decided to make its way up right through the middle of the main current here, and it leaps out of the water. Animals love to play too, obviously. Well, the tide here in Sergius Narrows in Peril Strait near the town of Sitka in southeast Alaska is often loud and raucous and intimidating as it is right now. But of course, in most places, the tide is as gentle as a whisper. The 19th century American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said it this way, 
The tide rises, the tide falls. The twilight darkens, the curlew calls. The little waves with their soft white hands efface the footprints in the sands. And the tide rises, the tide falls. Well, it may be subtle and silent most of the time, but for coastal people, if you're active around the water, you never want to forget about the tide. Like a lot of folks, I learned some lessons the hard way. Years ago, I remember I set my camera bag down on a beach here in southeast Alaska. I was fishing for salmon, got distracted, went back to get my camera. There was the bag, almost completely submerged. Very costly mistake. <laughs> And it's not only the rising tides that can cause problems, so can the falling tides. I once lived in a small village here in southeast Alaska, a place with very big tides. One day somebody fastened their skiff onto a fixed piling instead of fastening it to the dock that was built to go up and down with the tide. When I came by, the tide had dropped and that skiff was dangling from its bow line straight up and down about 10 feet above the water. Well, those experiences underscored the truth of the old adage that dates back to Geoffrey Chaucer in 14th century England. He said, time and tide wait for no man. Ah, yes, indeed. Well, it's one thing to watch the daily rise and fall of the tide, to plan your life around it, to be careful with it, but it's a very different thing to understand what makes tides happen. Some of the details about tide are extremely hard to understand. <laughs> They're beyond me, I gotta say. But I'm gonna try to summarize how scientists explain this remarkable phenomenon. Well, most of us know that the main cause for the tides is the moon. On the side of the Earth facing toward the moon, the moon's gravitational pull creates a bulge on the surface of the ocean. But here's the extraordinary thing. There is a second bulge on the side of the Earth opposite from the moon. How could that be? Well, that's a little bit more elaborate explanation. First of all, you got the centrifugal force of the Earth spinning on its axis, and that's trying to fling the ocean water outward all the way around the circumference of the planet. It's like one of those little spinning merry-go-rounds for kids in a park It tries to throw them off. Well, the Earth's gravity keeps the ocean from flying away into space, but on the side of the Earth facing away from the moon, the moon's gravitational pull is minimized because it's blocked by the Earth itself. And with that lower gravity from the moon, it increases the effect of the centrifugal force so the ocean bulges outward over there away from the moon. In between those two bulges, there's a dip or a hollow in the surface of the ocean. And so the world's oceans have a slightly elliptical shape, something like a football, except of course on a massive scale. As the Earth spins on its axis, different parts of the oceans come under the moon's gravitational pull. And so the two bulges or waves are constantly moving across the oceans. And this is what creates our tides. The tidal wave or tidal bulge moves around the surface of the oceans at over 400 miles an hour. But it seems to move very slowly because that wave or bulge is incredibly long. In fact, it's more than 13,000 miles from the crest of one of those bulges to the crest of the other at the equator. So 
we got two bulges and two low spots endlessly circling the world. And this is why most seacoasts have two high tides and two low tides each day. There are a few exceptions, including the Bering Sea coast in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico, where there's only one high tide and one low tide per day. That's because of a unique set of astronomical and geographic conditions, and we'll leave it at that. Now, the moon takes 24 hours and 50 minutes to complete each circuit around the Earth, and that's why the tides at any given place happen about 50 minutes later each day. Also, as that tidal bulge moves around the Earth, it can't quite keep up with the moon. It's slowed by the friction of the water against the bottom of the ocean and by the continents getting in the way. If it was just one big ocean, it could slip right around with the moon. So the tides lag behind the moon a bit farther, usually by a couple of hours. I'm turning around to look at my skiff, which is anchored against the rocks right here. And if I lost that, this would be one of the most memorable days of my life. <laughs> Incidentally, the moon also causes a bulge in the land. It's called the earth tide. It's small enough so we don't notice it, but the earth under our feet is constantly rising and dropping. Now, there's even more to this exquisitely complicated dance. First of all, the tide levels at any given place are caused not just by the moon, but also by the gravitational pull of the sun. Now, the sun is much farther away from the earth, so its pull is only about half as strong as the moon, so the moon is highly dominant in the movement of the tides. At the new moon, as it is right now, and the full moon, the sun and the moon are basically lined up with each other. That's called conjunction, and it combines their gravitational forces causing bigger than normal tides. These are known as spring tides. Now, that's not because it's related to season at all. It comes from an Anglo-Saxon root meaning active. <laughs> active indeed. Aren't we just seeing it right now? So at the new moon and the full moon, we've got the big tides. At the quarter moons, the sun and the moon are at right angles to each other. That's called opposition. So the gravity of the sun and the moon pull in different directions, and each one of them decreases the effect of the other. They cancel each other out a bit. And this causes smaller than average tidal ranges. Those are called neap tides. Again, from an Anglo-Saxon root, that one means inactive. Well, there's still another complication. As that tidal bulge sweeps across the ocean, the Earth's rotation deflects its movement to the right in the northern hemisphere and to the left in the southern hemisphere. This is called the Coriolis effect. For example, along the Pacific coast of North America, the tide doesn't just rise at the same time everywhere. Instead, the tidal bulge is deflected so it comes from the south and moves toward the north. So, for example, on October 1st, 2010, if we look at the afternoon high tide along the Pacific coast of North America, it hits the southern tip of Baja, California at 2.43 p.m. Then it hits San Diego, California an hour and a half later. And another hour and a half later, it hits Lapush, Washington. It hits Sitka, Alaska, close to where we are right now, another half hour later. And then Kodiak, Alaska, 
five hours after it reached Baja at 7.57 p.m. So you could follow that same wave of tide from Baja, California, Mexico to Alaska, but it's moving very fast, more than 400 miles an hour. So you better have a jet plane if you're gonna try to keep up. Now in the deep waters of the open ocean, the tides are quite small. For example, Honolulu, Hawaii, way out there in the Pacific, the mean tidal range is less than two feet. But that tidal bulge increases when it reaches the shallower water of the continental shelves and the coastlines. Why does that happen? It's caused by friction between the moving wave and the ocean bottom. It exaggerates both the peaks and troughs. So around the continents, the high tides get higher and the low tides get lower. The biggest increases of the tidal bulge happen along complex seacoasts, like right here in the inside passage of Alaska and British Columbia. Every stretch of coast, every island archipelago, every basin and bay, every inlet and passage has its own specific tidal patterns. As the tide surges in and out, it sloshes back and forth, up and down like the water in a bathtub. It magnifies and complicates the tides. And speaking of the water in a bathtub, if you imagine pulling the plug out of the bathtub in that whirlpool that happens, multiply that by about a thousand times and you'll have the whirlpool that's right in front of us now. Probably six feet deep, seven or eight feet across, and there's six or seven of them right in a line as this tide rolls down. And then we have to remember, as powerfully as this tide is moving in from the ocean right now, in a few hours it's going to be moving back the other direction. Now the classic examples of those exaggerated coastal tides are long bays that gradually become narrower and shallower, like the Bay of Fundy on the Atlantic coast of Canada. It's about 180 miles long, 60 miles wide at the mouth, and it squeezes down gradually like a long pointed sock. The maximum tide range at the head of the Bay of Fundy is about 50 feet. These are the world's biggest tides. Now that would probably be the worst place in the world to leave your camera bag on the beach. And then there's Cook Inlet in Alaska near the city of Anchorage. It's almost the same size and shape as the Bay of Fundy. The tidal range in Cook Inlet up to 40 feet, second biggest tides in the world. We'll talk more about Cook Inlet in a little bit, but right now I gotta go down and do something about my boat anchor. These rocks are covered with huge razor sharp barnacles and slippery kelp, kind of a nasty combination. And uh, if you fell down, you'd want to be ready to deal with a lot of blood. <laughs> now let's get this anchor up a little bit here. This would not be a place where you'd want to find yourself without a boat as the tide came up because this entire rock is going to be completely underwater. Now clambering back up, the rock is probably about uh, 12 feet above the water right now and as I said it won't be for long. I gotta say this is really one of the most exciting things I've ever done and uh, I suppose you could say arguably also one of the craziest. Okay, now we've been talking about the Pacific and the Atlantic, the world's biggest oceans. 
But what about smaller bodies of water? What happens there? Well, for example, the Mediterranean Sea. It's basically landlocked, except for a very narrow connection to the Atlantic through the Strait of Gibraltar. The tidal range in the Mediterranean, only about four inches. And Barrow, the northernmost community in Alaska, on the Chukchi Sea, peak tidal range about six inches. Huge lakes can also have tides. For example, Lake Superior, second biggest lake in the world, has a peak tidal range of about two inches. Now there's a place where it's probably safe to put your stuff down on the beach and forget about it. Well, as we can see so vividly, ocean tides also create currents. Well, lots of places around the world have big tidal currents, especially where the tides squeeze through narrow spots. Some of the world's fastest and most dangerous tidal currents are right here along the inside passage of British Columbia and Alaska. We've got a great example in Sergis Narrows. Massive amounts of water here are flowing between the open Pacific and into a convoluted expanse of inlets opening to the entire inside passage. The tides are rolling through this channel, which is a few hundred yards wide, but it's split into sections, one by Wyanda Ledge, where we are right now, by an island called Rapids Island. The other side of that is Canoe Pass, so it's a complicated thing. It's only about 24 feet deep, and there's a tremendous amount of water pouring through here. Rapids, boils, big whirlpools, careening whitewater. It's an awesome thing to see. Lots of boat traffic through here, although not right now. People avoid this place when the tide is at its maximum, as it is at the moment. Skiffs and cabin cruisers, commercial fishing boats, tugs and barges, small ships, Alaska ferries. Big boats, of course, can't match the speed of the peak currents, so they usually wait for slack water between tides. The Coast Pilot, which is the official navigation guide for these waters, warns this way. At the strength of the current, it is not safe for any vessel bound either way, especially long ones. The channel is so narrow and the current so variable in direction that if a vessel gets sheer, she may be carried onto the ledges or the shore. As I look out here through this wild water, I'm remembering back in 1986, a tug, it was named the Roughneck, tangled with its barge right here where we are in the channel of Sergis Narrows, and it sank. Two crew members were lost. The boat is lying on the bottom, just down there below the rapids. But there are wilder places than this one, and a prime example is Seymour Narrows on the east side of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. The peak currents and Seymour Narrows run 18 miles per hour. That compares with 10 or 11 miles an hour where we are right now. Seymour Narrows is one of the most notorious tidal passages in the world. Thrashing water, rolling boils, freight train power, huge whirlpools, 75 feet across and up to 15 feet deep. An extremely dangerous place, navigable only near slack tide. Over a hundred small vessels and 20 large ships have sunk in Seymour Narrows and it's taken 114 human lives. Well, one of the rarest and most spectacular events around the world's seacoast is the tidal bore. This is a wave or a series of waves that happens in a narrowing bay or river mouth right after low tide when the incoming tide meets the outgoing current and it kicks up that water. It only happens in about 60 places around the world. Now I've already mentioned Cook Inlet near the city of Anchorage. 
At the upper end of Cook Inlet, there's a long, shallow, narrowing branch called Turnigan Arm. On the biggest tides, a rolling, cresting wave stretches clear across Turnigan Arm. Sometimes it's over six feet high. In recent years, actually, the tidal bore in Turnigan Arm has become popular with surfers. Catch that wave for one very long ride, then paddle ashore and go back home. Maybe come back the next day and try again. But Turnigan Arm is an extremely dangerous place, mainly because it has huge tide flats with deadly quicksand. People have actually become stuck in that quicksand, unable to get out in spite of lots of help, and drowned when the frigid tide came back in. Well, the mother of all bore tides happens in the Tiantang River of China. It's a huge frothing wave up to 30 feet high, stretches many miles across a bottleneck-shaped river mouth. It's notorious for sinking boats. Even sizable ships have been sunken by that wave. It's taken countless lives over many centuries. That tidal bore is known to the Chinese as the Black Dragon. A Chinese tourism website gives a colorful description of this tidal bore. It says, when the tide approaches, its mighty surging tidal waves look like 10,000 horses galloping ahead. Its earth-shaking sound rumbles like muffled thunder. Every year, there's a festival in the city of Yangwan that coincides with the biggest tidal bores of the year. It attracts thousands of people from all over the world. I have a friend who went there. Huge crowds gather on elaborately constructed seawalls to watch this thing come in. Well, another important influence on tides is extreme weather. If a hurricane or another very powerful storm hits the coast when the tides are high, the water level can reach unprecedented heights. That's called a storm surge. And it happens, first of all, because of the very low barometric pressure. This means less weight of the air on the ocean surface, and it allows the tidal bulge to rise higher than normal. Adding to that effect, sustained gales that literally drive the water ahead of them and pile it up against the coast. And in addition to that, there are the big waves that push the water even higher against the shore. For example, when the big fall storms hit the Bering Sea coast of Alaska, the ocean can be up to 12 feet above normal levels. The city of Nome is especially vulnerable because the ocean sometimes can flood right into the city, causes millions of dollars of damage. But by far, the biggest storm surges of all are the ones caused by hurricanes. We've all heard about them. For example, when Hurricane Katrina struck the U.S. Gulf Coast in 2005, the winds hit 140 miles an hour. But there was more death and destruction caused by storm surge. That hurricane killed almost 2,000 people. The storm surge reached 27 feet in Mississippi. That's higher than a two-story house. It's the biggest storm surge ever recorded in the United States. I gotta get close to my boat because the tide is coming up and my boat anchor is in the water. I need to pick it up. There's my anchor. I'll be pretty glad when I can get off this rock. This is just a very scary place to be. But as I look around here at all this life among these rocks, 
reminded to say that the tidal shoreline is an environment like no other on Earth. The plants and animals living in the intertidal zone, where we're standing right now, these creatures face big challenges. Part of each day, they're out here in the air, as they are right now. As the tide comes up, they're all going to be underwater. They're often exposed to pounding surf. They bake in the summer sun. They freeze in the winter cold when they're out of the water. But the moving water and the currents make this a very rich habitat, especially tide pools. We've got lots of them around us right now. Little magic worlds full of exotic, brilliantly colored animals. I'm looking down into one right now with pinkish and purple sea anemones in it, little fish flitting around, barnacles, mussels, the sea anemones, orange and purple starfish, little shore crabs, darting little sculpins that I can see in the pool here, eel-like blennies, plus, of course, these slippery, tangled heaps of kelp and seagrass. The richness of the inner tidal zone also attracts other creatures, like the gulls we've got around us here. Shorebirds, oyster catchers, mink, even bears sometimes will come out and eat the little shore crabs, turn over rocks, find stuff to eat. Up in the Katmai, they dig clams on the tidal beaches. Now, as I look off, huge swarms of seagulls, the cormorants, all kinds of birds that gather around places with strong tidal currents because they're so rich in nutrients. And the seals, the sea otters, the porpoises, and of course humans take great advantage of the tide. Ever since the first people settled here along the coast of North America, the tidal zones have been a rich and reliable place to gather food. Still today, in villages and towns along the Alaska and British Columbia coast, people dig clams, they pick limpets and mussels and gumboots, they catch octopus, they gather seaweed. Lots of food around us here. Well, whenever people live close to the sea, it's important to keep the daily tide tables handy. Plan that low tide stuff like clam digging, letting the boat go dry to work on the bottom, or high tide stuff. For example, boating through a shallow passage, or maybe a passage that's even dry at lower tides. And nowadays, of course, there are lots of bright minds working on ways to use the tide as a low-impact, sustainable source of power. And then moving away from the practical to the philosophical, tide is woven into the way we think and talk. You don't have to live by a coast to say, he's running against the tide, or to speak about the growing tide of public opinion. Years ago, talking about the economy, President John Kennedy used the famous quote, a rising tide floats all boats. And another one about money, attributed to the American investor Warren Buffett, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. And then there's another saying that's perhaps so old, nobody knows its origin. Eternity begins and ends with the ocean's tides. This speaks beautifully of the magnitude, the power, the bewildering complexity, the mystery, the omnipresence of tides. As I stand here, I imagine the tide flowing into every cove and creek on the Pacific coast. I picture warm blue tides rippling over the reefs in Tahiti and Madagascar, and then frigid gray tides lifting icebergs in Greenland and Antarctica. I imagine the tide building to a black dragon boar in China, and tide slowly rising along the busy waterfronts of London and Hong Kong, the blissful beaches of Australia and Florida and Brazil. And I think about each of us as a miniature living ocean, our bodies made of water, every cell within us, 
drawn by the same force of sunset and moonrise that pulls on the ocean. And in this way, again, we're reminded that the earth is one great living thing, drawing immense breaths in accordance with the sun and the moon. All of this makes me love the tide even more. Well, for encounters, standing in the middle of one of the most exciting places I've ever been, Sergis Narrows in southeast Alaska on a monster flooding tide. I'm Richard Nelson. Want to thank you so much for your good company. And thanks to the tide for reminding us once again that we are not in charge around here. I'll see you next time. this rock before it's too late. <laughs>Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohen. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org.